morning again. We are in part two of our series of fear. If you missed last week, I'm going to give you a, a little review of it, but um, I highly recommend if you weren't here last week to listen back to either the podcast or to the YouTube or Facebook video because um, a lot of what we're talking about the rest of the series is built on last week, so make sure you do that as well. But um, thinking about today and, and the series, I was looking up um, all different types of phobias that there are out there, and I found some interesting ones, and I want to see if you, any of you can guess them. Um, my guess is you won't be able to. Because I probably can't even pronounce these correctly. It's probably going to be the problem for a lot of us. But here's some of the phobias I found. Arachabutriophobia. Arachabutriophobia. Butchering that. That is the fear. I'm not saying you know. The fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. It's a real fear people have. Some of them can still eat peanut butter. They just have to eat very, very small quantities. Some will never touch peanut butter uh, because they're so afraid of it sticking to the roof of your mouth. And what this really comes from, this stems from um, a fear of choking, and it just kind of expands to peanut butter. Um, but that's, it's really just a fear of choking that specifically about peanut butter. So here's another one. Um, esoptrophobia. Esoptrophobia. This is the fear of mirrors. Any mirror, rain reflection, you're afraid of. They cannot look at a, into a mirror or any kind of reflection. This can stem from um, superstitions, like you have a superstition about mirrors or um, or maybe like you think like, like what was when I was a kid, uh, Mother Mary or Bloody Mary, remember that? It's like something like that where it's like there's something might happen, a supernatural thing in the mirror. And this is normally caused by someone having a very low, low, low self-esteem. And they actually become ashamed to look at themselves and it eventually turns into a fear of just mirrors or reflections of any sort. Um, there's xan, xan, xanthophobia. xanthophobia. This is the fear of the color yellow. Fear of the color yellow. I'm afraid of the color yellow today, the black and yellow, because it's disgusting colors anyways for football. Amen. Okay. It is an object. It is, if an object is yellow, they're afraid of it. Things like a flower or a school bus, they're afraid of it. This normally stems, not to get like too sad here, but this normally stems from a traumatic situation that happened to them, that the, yellow, that the color yellow was very prevalent when that traumatic situation happened, and that's why a lot of times people have this, this phobia. Here's one that I, I think I know some friends that have this phobia. It's decidophobia. And you know what this one is? Fear of making decisions. They can never make a decision. Um, they excessively rely on other people to make their, a decision, or they will even look for external sources like uh, astrology to make decisions for them. I think I have some friends that suffer from, from this. And my, my wife, in fact, suffers from this whenever I ask her what she wants to eat. But I found the solution. I tell her what I want to eat, and that's the solution. Every time she goes, well, that's not what I want to do, okay? What do you want, what, what do you want to do? I, whatever, I don't care. It's like, what about this? Okay, well, not that, Eric. It's like, okay, then you just pick. I'm not going to guess until I pick the one you want. But this stems from uh, a mental disorder called dependent personality disorder that a lot of times people are dependent. And there are a lot of other phobias. There's vestophobia, which is the fear of clothing. There's linen phobia, which is fear of string. There's nomophobia, which is the fear of being without your phone. Some of you may have that. Um, there's plutophobia, which is the fear of money. And then there's phobophobia, which is the fear of phobias. Okay? And there's a lot more I could have found for you. There's these rare phobias that some people have. But for every single one of these rare phobias, something happened when they were younger that caused this phobia to happen. And, and normally something happened, and they didn't figure out what it was. They, they just kind of got ignored, and it kept going down a path that they have this very, very rare phobia. All of us, when it comes to fears, all of us have them. 
Now, not necessarily all of us have like silly fears like I talked about last week of like clowns or cricket spiders. Some of us have some of those, but we don't all have those. But deep down inside all of us, there is some kind of deep fear in us. And as we said last week, what we've been defining as fear is fear is simply our response to death. As in the possible death of a marriage, the possible death of your bank account, the possible death of your faith, possible death of your reputation. That fear is our response to something potentially dying. And when we believe a lie about ourselves or about God, when we have this lie that's in us that a lot of times happens when we are, when we are young, this lie that's produced in us, when we have that lie in us, fear is produced into our life. So since we all have some kind of fear that we have to wrestle with, that means there has to be a lie deep down inside of us that we have believed. And if you aren't sure what that lie is, again, we talked about this last week, so I highly recommend going back last week. But if you aren't sure what that lie is, that thing that you struggle with, the kids are, um, are, are they, last week they played penguin soccer, and I was like, guys, don't ever play soccer again while I'm preaching, okay? But um, there's a lot of kids up there, which is great. They might come be, they might be down here soon when all the, when it comes through the roof. If you aren't sure, if you aren't sure what that lie is, there's probably something that happened when you were younger as a child that it started. And, and here's a way that you can start to kind of figure this out. Do you find yourself self-protecting or do you find yourself self-promoting? So self-protecting is in self-protection is, is at, whenever something happens, you just need to protect yourself. You, you, and you need to make sure you don't want any responsibilities because then that might be a chance for you to disappoint somebody. And, and anytime someone gets a little closer, you can't ever show your real self. You have to protect yourself because if they knew your true self, then they would know something that you don't want them to know. So you're constantly self-protecting. That's self-protecting. Or they're self-promoting. As in, because I don't want you to know my real self or the thing that I'm struggling with, the fear, I'm going to act a certain way. I'm going to promote a certain thing. I'm going to promote myself. I'm going to make myself look better than I really am just so you don't find out the real thing about me. Which one do you find yourself doing? Whatever one that is, self-promoting or self-protecting, once you ask yourself, why do you do that? Why do you find yourself self-protecting? Why do you find yourself self-promoting. As I said last week, I am a self-promoter. And I self-promote because of the lie that I have believed ever since I was a kid that I'm simply not good enough. I'm not good enough at my job, and one day you're going to find out. I'm not good enough husband, and one day my wife's going to find out. I'm not a good enough parent, and one day my kids are going to find out. It's this lie that I believed since I was a little kid. I talked about it last week of where it came from, that I just always feel like I'm not good enough. So I have to promote myself to make it seem like I am good enough to everyone else that's around me. And this lie doesn't just affect my job or my faith. It, it can affect every aspect of your life. When I think of um, fights that my wife and I have that start because of me, normally it comes from the fact that I think I'm not good enough. That I think that she did not compliment my sermon, and I think, why didn't you compliment my sermon? You know I'm a word of affirmation guy. What, what's wrong with my sermon? What's wrong with me as a pastor? Why don't you compliment me? And it starts, starts a fight. Or, she'll, or she doesn't give me enough positive affirmation because, again, I need that. I'm a little needy at times with that kind of stuff. I like to, someone to tell me words of affirmation. Again, it goes back to that line. I think, well, why don't you tell me that, that like, I got a new shirt today. You didn't think I looked good in it. You didn't say anything. I said, no, I look fine. Or, or I got a haircut. And she's like, you didn't, you, you didn't say anything in my haircut. Like, all this stuff, it will cause fights because I feel like I'm not good enough. And if I don't feel, feel like she's giving me the attention that I need that's covering up for that lie, then we will get in fights. This lie that I have had, I have had trouble not believing can easily affect every aspect of my life, including my marriage. And my guess is, the lie that you have deep down that produces fear is affecting every part of your life as well. So what do we do with it? What do we do with this lie that we have believed since we were kids potentially that has caused fear in our lives today? Well, many of us 
The problem is we don't even know it's there. We don't know we, that we put our life on this false belief or on a lie. So, so we just keep going like nothing actually happened, and we keep living in fear, and we don't know why because we don't know the lie that's there. Where some of us, we know the lie's there. We just assume time's going to heal it. Time heals all things. Eventually, I'll just outgrow it. That, that insecurity that I had when I was a kid, I mean, I'm, I'm an adult now. I'm not going to still have that insecurity. And we just think over time, it'll eventually get better, and we will be fine. But we're learning quickly that time doesn't fix it. Instead, time can actually make that lie harder to replace and harder to discover because it's dug deeper inside of us. So what do we do? How do we fix this lie that a lot of us believe about ourselves, which is unique to each one of us, that is producing fear in our life? Well, here's what you need to do. You need to replace the lie with truth. Replace the lie with truth. We closed last week talking about this. We're going to expand on it more today. But we need to replace the lie with truth. The reason we under, need to understand how to do this is because when we believe, when we start living a lie about ourselves, and we believe that lie about ourselves, or we believe this lie about who God is, it produces fear in our life. And when we live with fear, we will always struggle with a word that a lot of us know, that our culture is very, talks about a lot, and here's the word that we'll, a lot of us will struggle with, with anxiety, worry. Anxiety disorders are um, the most common mental health concern in the U.S., I looked it up this week as of February 2023. is the most recent stats I could find. 32% of adults report symptoms of anxiety and depression. I'll give you the ages for that. Uh, 20% of 65 and over. 39% 50 to 64-year-olds. 38% of 28 to 50-year-olds. And listen to this stat. 18 to 24-year-olds, it's 49.9%. Half. Anxiety and depression is a national crisis at this point. And even if you are someone who, who doesn't struggle with anxiety, um, my guess is you still have worries. And you still have times when you are anxious. I, I don't consider myself someone that struggles with anxiety, but I've had two times where I've had panic attacks. First one was when we were getting ready to launch Impact Church. And I remember I, every time I would sleep, um, I just kept thinking, man, I must drink too much coffee because my heart's just racing and I can't go to sleep. I was like, I must be eating too much coffee. And then whole week of this happening. We're getting ready to launch it back. I'm just, I'm just constantly, can't sleep. My heart's racing. I'm having trouble breathing. And um, I eventually told Erica, I was like, yeah, I'm having trouble sleeping. I think I'm drinking too much coffee late um, because my heart's racing. She was like, Eric, well, what are you thinking about when this happens? I'm like, well, what I think about is um, all the things that we have to do for church and if anyone's ever going to show up and if we're going to be able to do it and all this stuff. She was like, yeah, it's not coffee. You're having panic attacks at night. And the first time I was like, oh, I, I was like, I'm not an anxious guy. I don't, I don't struggle with anxiety. And all of a sudden I was having panic attacks. And then um, we launched church, and then and it's been great. And then uh, a year ago, uh, I've, I've talked about this before if you've been here, but um, we had three major things happen that cost us a lot of money. We had our oil bill come in, which was three times the amount that I thought it was going to be. Um, my tractor went up. We had to buy a new car. And then our car went up a week later to a point where we couldn't even trade it in. It was done. It was dead. And it only had 100,000 miles on it. We thought we had years left in this car. We already had a car payment. And I just looked at our bank account. I remember calling Erica. I said, the car's done. I don't know what we're going to do. And then she came home, and I was sitting in the corner in a ball, literally, just going, we're done. We're, I, we have no money. We're broke. We have nothing left. And she had to be like, hey, we're okay. I was having a panic attack because I, I saw the bank account. I know how much money you need to get a car. We didn't have any of it. So I remember that, like, like yesterday, having a panic attack about that. So all of us, as we talk today, I, I want to make something clear before we continue. I'm not here to talk about, like, the mental disorder of anxiety or struggling with anxiety consistently because I'm not here, to, I don't want you to hear anything I'm saying today is like, hey, if you struggle with anxiety, you just got to pray more and have enough faith and that's going to heal you. I'm not saying that, okay? Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about 
the anxious thoughts that each one of us have. Some of us have it more than others, but the anxious thoughts that each one of us have, and here's how I'm going to define it today in relation to the sermon we're talking about. Anxiety is in the worrying about the lie. That lie that we have, that lie that we have trouble believing, worrying about that lie, that false belief that we have deep inside of us that is creating fear. Some of us spend so much time worrying about that lie, and instead of replacing it, we worry about it, we give it more attention, and that lie grows bigger and it gets deeper. So the question I want to ask you, what does God call us to do with those anxious thoughts? What does God call us to do with our anxiety? Luckily, the Bible talks a lot about fears and a lot about anxiety. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he's at the Last Supper, and all of his disciples are there, and he tells them what's about to happen. Hey, it's all about to be done. I'm about to be crucified, but don't worry. I'm going to come back three days later. And my guess is the disciples just heard the crucified part, and then they just mentally checked out because they do not— they weren't there three days later counting down for Jesus to come out. They thought it was over once he died. So the disciples are there at the table, and Jesus says, hey, not only am I going to be crucified and I'm, it's all about to go, but all of you are going to abandon me. All of you are my closest friends. So imagine, like, the dinner conversation that the disciples are having and things they're thinking about. The person that they were following, their teacher, their leader, and who they believed was the Messiah, who the, the Messiah can't die, by the way, if he's the Messiah. That's what they were taught from, from tradition. They, all they now hear is, it's about to be over. Imagine their hearts. Imagine how troubled they would be. Imagine how anxious. They all left their jobs for this guy, and it's about to be done? It's about to be crucified? So Jesus tells them this news, and here's what he says, right after he tells them what's about to happen. In uh, John chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. You notice that first line? Do not let your heart be troubled. This can also be translated, do not let your heart shudder. There's, a, there's an absolute reason for these disciples' hearts to be troubled. But there's a greater reason for it not to be. Jesus says, you know the way. And the reason why he can say that you know the way confidently to the disciples is because he knows the disciples know him. He's the way. But Thomas doesn't get it. He goes, well, we don't know the way, Jesus. What are you talking about? So Jesus makes it perfectly clear what he's talking about in verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You want to know the way? The way is you know God. You know how I know you know God? Because you know me. I am God. I am the way that will cure your troubled hearts. I am the truth that will replace your lies. And I am the life that you are seeking to have. And this message of Jesus being the answer to our troubled hearts and to our anxieties, it continues later through Scripture. In Peter, um, in 1 Peter, Peter's writing, who's one of Jesus' 12 disciples, he writes this um, circular letter is what it's called. As in, it's not designed for one specific church. It was written to be passed around to a bunch of different churches in the Asia Minor, Minor area. These Gentile Christians that he's writing to are all being persecuted by the Roman neighbors. So here's what he writes to them in 1 Peter. Uh, in 1 Peter, we're going to start in verse 5. In this letter to these, these Christians suffering persecution, here's what he says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Notice what it doesn't say. 
doesn't say, hey, stop having anxieties. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say, hey, your anxieties is from a lack of faith. You need to give that note. That's not what he says. Instead, he says, when the anxiety comes, surrender it to me. Surrender it to God. When the anxiety comes, give it to God. Cast your anxiety on him. You can only do that when you humble yourself. In fact, the word cast in the Greek is not an isolated command. It's not even a command at all. It's a characteristic of a humble person. Humble yourself. And when you do that, you have to start. If you want to cast your anxiety, it starts with you being humble. Well, what does that mean? That means that you have the right recognition of who God is. You have the right recognition of who you are in relation to a creator. And when we have the right understanding of who God is, a God who cares for us, who wants to have a relationship with us, who died for us, from there, from that humble recognition and, and posture and position, from there we cast our anxieties. If anxiety is worrying about the lie, then the solution needs to be replacing the lie with truth. Here's what St. Thessalonians 2 says. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruit to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, look at this last part, and through belief in the truth. Um, this week I read an NPR interview um, with uh, Lisa Miller. Lisa Miller is a professor of clinical psychology program in Columbia, and she wrote a book um, that just came out called The Awakened Brain. Here's what they are finding out um, when, they're doing, when they're doing scientific studies, specifically about spirituality. Here's what they're finding. Spirituality is actually good for your mental health. They're finding this out. Lisa Miller spent 20 years investigating this exact topic. The question she was trying to answer was, what is the impact of spirituality, if any, when it comes to addiction, um, anxiety, and depression? What's the impact? Does, does it help? Does it hurt? How, what does it do? She doesn't define spirituality as Christianity. She defines it as believing something bigger than her. That's what she defines it as. That's what spirituality is. And here's a quote that she has. It'll be up on the screen as well. Here's what she says. The protective benefit of personal spirituality, meaning someone who says that their personal spiritual spirituality is very important, is 80% against addiction. They have 80% decreased relative risk for the DSM diagnosis of addiction to drugs and alcohol. So the interviewer um, starts questioning. He goes, hold on, hold on. So you're saying that if somebody has a meaningful spiritual life, that is 80% less likely to get addicted to drugs and alcohol than someone who says that they don't have a spiritual life. That's important to them. And her simple answer, Lisa Miller, is like, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. She then goes on to explain how the, benefit, the benefits of having a crucial spiritual life with anyone dealing with anxiety. And she goes on to say that when you engage in spirituality, you have an 82% chance to reduce your anxiety and depression. 82%. So the interviewer starts pushing a little deeper, and I, and I like that she was doing this. She was like, well, how do you know this? Like, how, how are you able to determine those numbers? Like, are you just factors, stats you're, you're saying? Like, how do you know that there's no external factors that are, that are part of this that is is making these, these uh, results. And here's how she explained it. What they did is they took an MRI, they, they got people at Yale Medical School, different people from all different faith backgrounds, and they asked them to explain a time that they felt close to God or to a higher power, to explain it. And they recorded their answers. So they responded this time, this time when I was younger and I did this, I felt God speak to me, whatever their answer was, they recorded it. Then they take these same people and they put them in an MRI machine to look at their brain. And they play back the audio from themselves talking about when they felt close to God. And here's what they found. All the participants, when they heard this, their brains lit up. Connected to these memories, the bonding network in their brains came online the same way it does when you were held as a baby by your parents or your grandparents. It just changes everything. 
It's scientifically proven that when you engage in spirituality, you're better. Your mind works better, you worry less, you love more. So how do we go about replacing the lies that we have all believed for a long time with the truth so that we do not spend our life in fear and being anxious over what could possibly happen in our life through the lies? The answer is simple. The gospel. The gospel is the way that we replace those lies with the truth. And what does that mean? I'm going to explain it to you the rest of this time, and then we're going to um, close in uh, a special way today. But um, here's what the gospel is in its most simplest terms. Here's what it is. First, we confess. Confess. Confessing isn't saying you're sorry. It's what we tend to think it is, that it's just us saying, I'm, I'm sorry for what I did. Here, think of confession this way. Um, if you get arrested for a crime that you did, when the cops want you to confess, what do they want you to do? They want you to say you're sorry, or do they want you to tell them what happened? Tell them the truth is what they want you to do, right? That's what confession is. It's telling God our version of the truth. Why do we need to do that? God already, God is, God already knows, right? God knows everything. He's, he's all present. He's omniscient. Like, God already knows everything. Here, here's why. This week, um, I was making dinner for uh, uh, the kids. I was making chicken on the grill and cooking other stuff. I brought everything in, and, and we put green beans, rice, and we had chicken they were going to eat. My son Noah does not like green beans, but he doesn't like most vegetables, so we make him eat it because we don't want to eat candy all the time, okay? So we have green beans. I cut one of the pieces of chicken open and realized ah, I didn't, don't think it's cooked it enough. I'm going to go put it back on the grill. And I'm like, kids, go ahead and finish your green beans and your rice. And when you're done, you can go back downstairs. So they eat. And we come back in. And my wife and I notice, man, every kid's plate is completely clean, including Noah's, who never eats green beans. We're like, this is interesting. But then this dumb kid left a napkin right next to his plate. So we open the napkin up. And what do you guess I find? Four green beans in there. The four I gave him. We only make him eat four. Four green beans. So my wife and I go, hey, let's see what happens. We're calling him back up. And we're like, hey, you guys ate everything on your plate. And they're like, yeah, we did. We're like, Noah, did you eat everything? He said, yes, I did. I was like, we were like, even your green beans? He said, yeah, I did. Then we said, where are your green beans right now? He said, it's in my belly. I ate them. So then we said, well, we have this napkin right here. What is this? And he went, I have no idea what that is. He's like, I don't, it can't be mine. And we're like, dude, don't lie to us. We, we know. He's like, okay, it's my green beans. And he ate them. So, why do we ask him the question? Were we trying to get the answer? I knew whose green beans they were. I wasn't seeing. Only thing I was asking them, the reason why I was asking Noah, I wanted to see how he, how he would respond. I wanted to see his answer. John 8.32 says that you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth doesn't set God free. God is truth. The truth sets you free. To live out the gospel, you have to confess what you truly believe. Confess that lie that you believe about yourself that is producing fear. And with sin, when you sin, I want you to dig deeper into why. What is that fear that caused you to sin? What is that lie that we believe that, and that caused us to sin? And I want you to confess that. Here, here's what it might sound like for you, that lie that's deep down in you. When you say to God, God, I just don't think you're powerful enough. God, I don't think you care about me enough. I, I care more about my pleasure over right now over what's better for me later. God, I feel like I deserve to do this. God, I feel wrong, so I took control here. God, I feel unloved, so I found love where I could. God, I feel not good enough, so I did what I had to do to make sure I felt good enough. Confess your version of the truth. And when you do that, it does not harm your relationship with God. In fact, it does the opposite. It allows God to now transform your heart because you are confessing what your version of the truth is. The gospel starts with you confessing, number one. 
Then number two, you have to repent. We tend to think that um, confession is saying I'm sorry and repentance is saying I'm really, really sorry. Not what repentance is. This is, that isn't repentance. Repentance is changing your direction. Repentance is changing your mind. Repentance is changing who you were to be more like who he is. Just like Adam and Eve's sin wasn't really eating the apple, it was the decision that led them to eat the apple. It was the decision to say, you know what, maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe I need more. Maybe there's something else. So I'm going to go and do this action. Just like, just like that, we need to understand that the sin we have always starts from an incorrect belief always comes from a lie that we have in us, a lie that we believe. So we have to first discover what it is and confess it to God. And from there we say, all right, God, now replace that. Replace that with your truth. That's what repentance is. It isn't, hey, God, I did something I'm not supposed to do. God, I promise I won't do that again. No, it's, it's going deeper than that. When you're trying, you, instead you go deeper. What false belief led me to that action that I don't want to do? What is the thing that led me there? And God, I want you to replace that not just the action of sin. No, what is the belief that got me to the action of something I did not want to do? Ask God to change the belief that caused that action. Maybe for you, if you have trouble not losing your temper, instead of saying, God, just help me not to lose my temper anymore, I want you to go deeper. God, why do I find myself with this in my heart that leads me to lose my temper? And I want you to replace that. Instead of saying, okay, God, I want you to help me to stop looking at, at these certain things I'm looking at at night, late, when I'm lonely by myself. Instead of just saying, God, just help me not do that action anymore. Say, no, God, what is leading me to get there? What's in me deeper that's in there, and I want you to replace that. Maybe for you, it's, I just have trouble trusting people. I have tr- trouble trusting my, my spouse, my friends, my family. I just have, always have trouble. Instead of saying, God, just help me to trust people more, and I say, God, what's deeper that led me there, and I want you to replace that. You confess, you repent. That leads us to believe. Believe. The Greek word for believe is often used in, in Scripture is uh, pistis, which can be translated to belief or put trust with or have faith in. So if we want to believe, live out the gospel of believe, here's what you need to do. The first one is have a belief. Number one, belief. Belief is you consciously agreeing that something is true. I have a belief that the Bible is true. I have a belief that coffee is delicious. I have a belief that the Orioles are going to win the World Series, even after yesterday. I still have that belief. But belief is not enough. The demons have belief that God exists, but that's not enough. So just saying, hey, I have a belief that God exists is not enough. No, it's start with belief and then has to go with number two, trust. Trust is taking action based on what your belief is. So if I say I believe the Bible is true, so I'm going to read it now. That's trust. I I believe coffee is delicious. So I'm going to drink it. I believe the Orioles are going to go to the World Series, so I will gladly take any gifts of World Series tickets that you want to give myself and Frank, okay? Belief, trust. Belief has to be first, but you need to do something with that belief. You have to show that trust, and that leads us to number three, which is faith. When you have a belief that leads you into an action, the result is faith. That's the result. So you confess, you confess to God your version of the truth. You allow God to replace those lies that we have believed with what is actually true, and then you have faith that what he tells you is true and start living like it is true. That is why we are called to live out the gospel daily. It takes humility to confess. It takes surrender to repent, and it takes obedience to believe. And then the last part of the gospel is this. Be baptized. Confess, you repent, you believe, and you're baptized. What we believe baptism is, it's just an outward expression of inward grace. It is outwardly telling the world what God has done 
inside of you. And the reason why um, almost most traditions, most Christian traditions, baptize people by going under submersion is, is this. Because when you go down, you are, you are with Jesus in his death. That's what you're doing. We're representing that we are dying to ourselves. we're dying to our belief, we're dying to our sin, we're dying to that old way of living just like Jesus died for us. But then we come back up, just like God died and was resurrected, Jesus died and resurrected, we also start a new path, a new way of living. So when we get baptized, that's why we do that. The old is gone and the new is here. For some of you, your next step is to get baptized, is to go public with that faith. If, if you've never been baptized before, maybe you're baptized as a baby, I still believe you should get baptized. There's a lot of scripture to point uh, to reasons to that. I don't think you always have to, but I think you should. And here's a big reason why that you don't always talk about. Not only did every example in scripture have baptism after someone was saved, including Jesus, who was 30 years old when he got baptized, but I just want you to remember your baptism as well. I think it's something we miss. It's important for you to remember it. It's important for you to remember that decision that you made. But here's what happens. We see this part, and for those that have been baptized, we are check, done, what's next, how we close this out. That's what we think when it comes to baptism. But, for, but when we understand, when Paul talks about baptism in Romans 6, he says that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too walk in newness of life. If fear is our response to death, baptism hinges on the concept of death. When we live out baptism daily, we walk directly into our fear with the lie that we believe. We die to that lie, and then we walk out in a new way, in a new life, in a true way. Look at all the examples of the disciples and Jesus. The disciples, a lot of them were fishermen. They were fishermen, and they had a fear of the sea. That's what they would have. They would respect the sea. And what did Jesus do constantly? Let's go on a boat, and a big storm is going to come. Now I'm going to walk on the water like a ghost. The biggest fear they would have had, he put them right in the middle of it. Anytime there's a group of people that the disciples didn't really like or had these different things about it, it's like, we can't go there. They're going to murder us. Jesus said, okay, that's where we're going. That's your fear. And sometimes they would be run out of the town when they would go there. Constantly, Jesus was bringing people into their biggest fear. So what if when we be, become anxious about whatever it is that we are worried about, that lie that we have been wor worrying about in our life, what if we started to believe, you know what? I'm going to take this belief of this lie that I have. I'm going to surrender to you. I'm going to ask you to replace that belief with what your truth is. I'm going to confess it. I'm going to repent it. I'm going to believe. And then every day, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to walk in the truth of Jesus. And whatever fears I have every day, I'm going to be baptized again so that I can walk in newness with him. This is how we cast our anxieties to Christ. Each day, we confess, we repent, we believe, and we live out our baptism so that you will not be chained by the grips of fear and lies. And when you truly begin to live this out, it can be life-changing for you. Now your anxieties aren't just something you have to fix. Now your anxieties are an opportunity for you to find something else to surrender that to Christ. You know what? I have these anxious thoughts. God wants me to surrender this, so I'm going to surrender this to him now. What right now is causing you anxiety? What right now is causing you worry? What right now are you believing that's a lie? What truth do you need to start believing instead of that lie? And what would happen if you actually started to live this out? Not just believe it, but confess it, repent it, believe it, and live out our baptism. So here's how we're going to close. We're going to close um, a little differently today. Worship team's going to start coming up. But I want to um, give you time 
to be in the presence of God, to surrender this to God. Most of the time, our prayer life is kind of turns into just like a, um, like a grocery list. Here, God, here's what I need to pray about. Here's my prayer request. And sometimes there are a list of demands that we give to God. Um, and that's it. That's kind of what most of our prayer life is. I'm just, God, here's the things I'm worried about today. Here's the things I need to do. Can you please take care of this for me? Thank you. Bye. And then we go live our life. And very few of us take time to just listen to what God has to say. And the reason why a lot of us don't do it is because we just don't know how. We don't know how to do that. So um, what we're going to do, um, we're going, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to guide you in a listening prayer. It's going to be a chance for you to hear what God has to say, the lie that you have, and to surrender it to him. Now, as we do this, um, I'm going to warn you now, if you've never done this before, um, you will be distracted. You're going to have thoughts run into your head. That's fine. When that happens, just simply turn back to God. I was talking to Frank about it earlier. Every time you do that is another time you're surrendering to God. So if you have to turn back to God 100 times in this prayer, you surrender to God 100 times in the prayer. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to have you guys keep your eyes closed, and then I'm going to guide you so that we can hear what God has to say to us, the lie that he wants to replace with us. Let me pray for us. Dear God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for giving us a purpose and a plan. Thank you for the God that you are. And dear God, I pray that you help us to surrender who we are, every aspect of us, the lies that we struggle with, all to you. I'm going to ask that you all keep your eyes closed. I want you to simply breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Ask the Spirit to give you some kind of word. Maybe this word is a description of who God is. Maybe it's a word like rest. But right now, as you breathe in and you breathe out, simply ask God to give you a word. Spend time in prayer. If you find your mind being distracted, simply breathe out that word. Center it back to what you're doing here. So now I want you to imagine you're at a table. And sitting at that table with you is Jesus Christ. Breathe in. Breathe out. And he asks you one question. What do you need to confess? As you continue to breathe in, breathe out, dig deep for that lie and confess it to God now.
sitting at this table. Imagine Christ speaking truth into your life. What is the truth that he is speaking right now? sit. Christ puts his arm around you and he calls you something. What does he call you? Continue to breathe in, breathe out. Allow Christ to speak to you right now. What does he have to say to you right now? What does he want you to know right now? invited to stay in this place as long as you need. Listen to the God who has a truth for you. And as we get ready to play this closing worship song, I invite you whenever you're ready, whenever you have done listening to the voice of God, to celebrate what you have heard in worship. Take as much time as you need.